We have there before us on page 13, Lord's Day 11 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And again, as we're moving forward in the Catechism, we're now in that section which is explaining and expounding upon all the articles of the Apostles' Creed. And so we have covered those articles which have to do with believing in God the Father Almighty. We turn now to those articles concerning our belief in His only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. And our topic this evening, therefore, is on that name, Jesus. So let's read this responsively. This is question and answer 29 and 30. Why is the Son of God called Jesus, meaning Savior? Because He saves us from our sins. And because salvation is not to be sought or found in anyone else. Do those who look for their salvation and security in saints, in themselves, or elsewhere, really believe in the only Savior, Jesus? No, although they boast of being His, by their actions they deny the only Savior, Jesus. Either Jesus is not a perfect Savior, or those who in true faith accept this Savior have in Him all they need for their salvation. We've heard God's Word now. We have heard it summarized. Let's ask for the Holy Spirit's help to understand what His Word says. Almighty and everlasting God, our Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that we are sinners conceived and born in sin, unable of ourselves to do any good. But we do repent of our sins and seek Your grace to help us in our remaining weaknesses. Through the teaching of your word, which we confess with the church throughout the ages, satisfy our hunger and quench our thirst with your refreshing truth, that we with all our hearts may love and serve you with our Lord Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, the one and only true God who lives and reigns forever. Amen. Perfection has to do with something being complete. It does not need anything to be added to it or taken away from it. It isn't missing anything. And if you were to experience a perfect something, whatever it happens to be, you wouldn't want to add anything to it or take anything away from it. And we are, in many ways, always searching for perfection in the various areas of our life, the perfect job, the perfect meal, you know, you just add the right ingredients, or maybe next time you make it, take away a few ingredients, the perfect ball game that is played with such skill and it's refereed with perfection, the perfect movie, the perfect spouse, we're looking for perfection in all these places, and of course, none of these things actually really reach perfection, not in this age. Some flaw always has to be taken away. Some virtue is always, always needs to be added to these particular things. But not so with the Savior, Jesus Christ. But as it goes, when we arrive at Jesus Christ, when we begin to set our hearts upon Him, and we recognize Him to be a perfect Savior who is lacking nothing, we are, for some reason, always tempted 
to add something to him through our works and practices or to take something away from him that he has accomplished. A twisting of his person and his work and his teaching on our behalf. Well, then how do we get back on track when our hearts tempt us and the the world and the devil tempt us in just such a way? Well, we focus on the meaning of his name, on him being called Jesus, meaning Savior. And our our first point this evening is to focus on the meaning of his name. Uh, Names tend to have meanings, perhaps less so in our contemporary age than in the ancient world and in the the, uh, eras during which the Bible was written. And when it came time for Joseph and Mary to name their son, they had been instructed by the angel to name him something in particular. Why? Matthew chapter 1, verses 21 that we read just a few minutes ago tells us, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. There is a name given, and there's the grounding given for the name. The reason why he must be named this. His name shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. In other words, this miniature sermon that the angel is proclaiming to Joseph in his dream is that there is a deep connection between the name Jesus and the act of saving there is, on the one hand, an etymological connection. Meaning that the name itself very simply means the Lord saves. That's what the name Jesus means. It comes from two Hebrew words that when you put them together, you get Yeshua. And that in uh, the Old Testament comes out in our English Bibles as Joshua, from the book of Joshua. And in the New Testament comes out as Jesus. Both of these names are that combination of the two words meaning the Lord saves. There's also a theological connection, which is even more important than that etymological one. It's not just a matter of words that we're talking about here. There's a profound theological connection. Because it's not enough to say, okay, um, well, Yeshua. Joshua or Jesus means the Lord saves and therefore anyone who has that name is a savior. Yeah, we, can't, we can't say that. That would be resting purely on that argument from the meaning of words. But we recognize as we read the scriptures that Joshua of the Old Testament was merely a foreshadowing of the one who was to come. It is true that Joshua in many ways lived up to his name. He conquered many of the enemies of God. He, in many ways, important ways, by God's design, was a savior. But only Jesus has conquered death and hell. And in other words, uh, what we're saying is that nothing can be added to or taken away from Jesus. He fulfills perfectly what his name signifies. He lives up to the name. In his office as mediator, he, and he alone, brings us to God. The Lord saves. And he has done this primarily through the saving work of Jesus Christ. 
And when he saves, he saves to the uttermost. There's nothing lacking. There's nothing left over. He is the perfect Savior. That's the meaning of his name. But then we have to also, secondly this evening, we have to believe in his name. It is not enough to know his name or even to confess merely with your lips his name. The Catechism highlights for us that we must receive him by faith alone. Uh, It reads in, in the Catechism, those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need for salvation. Those who in true faith accept this Savior have in him all they need. You must have true faith. And that faith must lean upon Christ. And brothers and sisters, this is the great task of the Christian, is to believe in his name. You have many other callings upon your life. Many high and sacred callings. Things that you must do, but they are for nothing, spiritually speaking, unless they are united to this cardinal virtue of faith. As Paul says, apart from faith, it is sin. Whatever proceeds from us, all of our works are as filthy rags in the eyes of God unless they come from true faith. So we must begin there, believing in his name, accepting this Savior with a true faith. The Apostle John ends his gospel in John chapter 20 saying this, These things are written, these things being all this, you know, this great record of Jesus and what he's done. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. That is the purpose of knowing something about Jesus Christ. It is to believe in him and to receive life in his name. Faith, of course, as we focused on in, in previous catechism sermons, is that action of the heart which rests in Christ, which reaches out. There's lots of different images and pictures that kind of get this across in Holy Scripture. It's when the heart reaches out with an empty hand and embraces Jesus Christ or accepts him or leans upon him, receives him. Receives him. All right, well, then what do you receive when your heart reaches out with true faith? What is it precisely that you are receiving? When your heart believes in Christ, you receive the whole Christ. And what I mean by this is that you don't receive part of who he is or part of what he has done. You receive him in his totality. And because he is the perfect Savior, you are perfectly saved. You receive the whole Christ. You receive him, for example, in his humility and in his glory. Theologians talk about these two categories by speaking of Christ in his state of humiliation and his state of exaltation. That he has come down and he has been raised up and you receive it all by faith. That is what you receive. When you repose in Jesus Christ and rest and receive him, you receive him who has come down from heaven 
and has allowed himself to go about in this present evil age in a human form and was lowly and obedient and, and submissive. That is the form that he has taken, though he is the king of the ages. You receive him who has faced the very dark trials of betrayal from friends, attacks from enemies, temptation from the devil, persecution, and death. You receive the one who was innocent and yet willingly suffered the condemnation and punishment for sins that he did not commit. And so you receive him in his humility and all that he has done in the state of his humility. But you also receive him who rose up from the grave and who holds in his hands the keys to death and Hades and who ascended to God's right hand and sits there at his right hand as our great high priest. And so, loved ones in Christ, whatever you could possibly need for body and soul, Christ alone provides. You need your sins forgiven, you see. You have these great and profound needs. You you need your sins forgiven. You need a perfect righteousness. You need a new body that is glorified and made ready for the kingdom of God and that isn't subject to decay and illness and disease and to the grave. And your Savior looks at this huge list of impossible requirements and he says, I got that. All of it because you receive the whole Christ by faith. You must believe in his name. Lastly this evening, you must also persevere in his name. Brothers and sisters, if Jesus is truly who his name proclaims him to be, if he is the perfect Savior, then truly you have in him all you need for salvation. And you know, salvation is a very, it's a very broad category in Scripture. It includes all kinds of things. And we have to be careful and read things in context. But when we talk about salvation, we are talking about the renewal of your soul and regeneration. And your justification that you are now righteous in God's sight. That you are being sanctified and being made holy within by His grace and Holy Spirit. That you are adopted as a child of God and have been brought into His kingdom and given a bath in holy baptism and welcomed to His table to have nourishing meals with the Son of God. And salvation includes persevering with Christ, to be kept with Him, to be kept all the way to the very end when you will finally at the end be glorified and given a new body. That's the totality of salvation. And what our catechism is teaching us tonight from Holy Scripture is that His name proclaims to us that He alone saves. And in Him, you have all you need for that salvation. And this means that your spiritual pilgrimage in this life must be one of persevering in His name. This is what you need to be reminded of today and every day and on the last day. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. That's, that is the sermon proclaimed by the angel. He shall be called Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And this means that you cannot rely on anything or anyone else to save you. Uh, you know, altogether speaking, a, a whole kind of salvation, or even a part of your salvation. You cannot look to anything or anyone else. If you have or know someone with a Roman Catholic background, perhaps you understand the draw of praying to the saints. This is something that the Catechism is particularly pointing out in, uh, in question and answer 30. But what, what, we're, uh, what we need to understand from our Catechism is that that act is looking for security in someone other than Jesus Christ. And therefore, that practice denies the exclusive sufficiency of Jesus Christ. It calls into question the perfection of His being our Savior because it looks to others for a kind of spiritual security. But there are other ways that people do this too. It doesn't have to be so high church. It doesn't have to be related to the cult of the saints. Uh, I've met many people in my life, mostly at funerals, having discussions with them, who otherwise don't spend any time thinking about spiritual matters unless you bring it up to them. In, uh, in my experience speaking with people like this, when you bring it up to them, they will start to talk about how their mom is very religious or how they have friends that they know pray a lot and they're very devout. Because so often when we're confronted with spiritual realities, we look to someone else as though we can be saved by proximity to someone else who might be faithful. But salvation cannot be found in someone else's piety or devotion. It is found in Christ. Probably more than anything else, though, we are tempted simply to trust in ourselves. Instead of looking totally and persevering totally in Christ and looking to Him as our perfect Savior who has in Him all that we need for salvation, we find ways to trust ourselves. When your conscience accuses you again that you have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and when the devil holds up your record to you again that you have blown it, your sacred calling is not to say, well, I'm trying. And I was kinder to my co-workers this week, and I was more patient with my family, and uh, I gave more this week in my offerings, and I've, I, I tried fasting this year. That is not your calling when your conscience and the devil team up to accuse you once again. Now, uh, let's be clear. Kindness and patience and, and giving offerings and tithes and and fasting and these kinds of things, when they are offered in faith, are very pleasing in the eyes of God. But they cannot save you. There's no act of piety which saves you at all. And the more that we look to those kinds of things, the more we are actually looking to ourselves and trusting in ourselves. 
your sacred calling when your conscience and the devil accuses you is to once again believe in his name. And to admit with perfect honesty that indeed you have fallen short of the glory of God worse than you even know. But that Christ is a perfect Savior. So brothers and sisters, be reminded again tonight the total nature of this salvation that is offered to you in Jesus Christ. The fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Him. And when you receive Him by faith, you are receiving the God of your salvation. You are receiving this salvation which belongs to the Lord and He gives it to those upon whom He will have mercy. This Jesus Christ lacks nothing. So forsake all other so-called saviors and find in Him all that you need. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious God, you build your church on the foundation of the doctrine of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. And so we pray that you would bless our congregation to grow in their teaching. Assist us in meditating with joy on your mighty acts. Enlighten our minds more and more with the light of the everlasting gospel. Kindle in our hearts a love of your truth. Nourish us with the full counsel of the word of God. Enable us to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints and defend us from the sins of heresy and schism. And as we have heard the true doctrine proclaimed to us, by your great blessing, may it be preserved among us and propagated through us by our lips and lives to the glory of the one true God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.